What does it mean to be a man in the 21st century? What can we learn from people who study and work with men? Why does focusing on masculinity matter? These are some of the questions we are here to answer. I'm Alex Bove, inviting you to talk like a man. Hi, everyone. It's Talk Like a Man, episode three, featuring my interview with Drew Kerwood. Drew has been working for almost 10 years with fraternity organizations. We're going to talk about fraternities, uh, an interesting bastion in many ways of masculinity in our culture. But I think we're going to talk about some ways in which maybe that's changing uh, for the better, we hope. And some, at least people who are trying to help it change. And again, Drew is one of them. So he's been working for nearly 10 years with organizations like Delta Chi, his own fraternity, and uh, Phi Kappa Psi as well. At Phi Psi, he worked to develop wellness and harm reduction programming for the undergraduate members, including masculinity, mental health, sexual health, and violence prevention programming. And we're going to talk about pretty much all of those aspects. Really, really interesting stuff. Drew's also a recent graduate of Widener's program in human sexuality. Very dear to my heart, that program, obviously. I'm also a graduate of that program. Uh, he also has a master's degree from Arizona State University. And he's just working on health, wellness, masculinity, healthy relationships, all for the most part within the context of fraternities and Greek organizations. And so again, it's just a fascinating glimpse into that world. I didn't really know much about it before I met Drew, and I, I didn't even know nearly as much as I know after an hour of talking with him. So without further ado, let's get to it. My interview with Drew Kerwood. Well, Drew Kerwood, welcome to Talk Like a Man. How you doing? Doing well. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. So I am really interested in hearing about a lot of things from you, but uh, one thing, uh, I met you through Widener, and um, I've had you come to my Men and Masculinities class and talk about this, so I, I'd like to start out in, in what I think is an interesting place, which is you have had, you've done some really great work in fraternities um, on masculinity, which I want to talk about, but I'm really thrilled about everything you've said about like sexual health and relationships, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff sounds great too. So maybe just briefly, because everyone who's listening to this doesn't know what I'm just talking about. <laughs> could you give us a rundown? Like what, what have you been doing uh, with fraternities? Yeah. So um, just, uh, I'll try and give a quick timeline. Um, I joined an organization, uh, Delta Chi in fall 2008 uh, at Westchester university. Um, and so that's, you know, started all the way back then, uh, and eventually started, you know, volunteered as a advisor for a long time and just got a lot of time with undergraduate students in the, in the organization. Um, and then eventually started working for my organization headquarters office, uh, where I did a lot of like chapter operations, best practices kind of stuff and helping the guys know what they're supposed to be doing and how to run their organizations on campus. Um, so a lot of that history was there. Uh, as the chapter advisor though, when I was volunteering back home, I was also working at Planned Parenthood. So I had, um, was developing a lot of my skills and training in sexual health training and pre presenting and stuff. And I brought that to the chapter I was advising uh, a little bit. When we had a new member class um, each semester, I actually would do like a sex ed uh, intro with them. Uh, during the new member education process, um, just to help make sure that they had some some basics, uh, and it included like you know the kind of stuff around like birth control and condoms and STDs, um, and a little bit around um, consent and healthy relationship stuff. Um, it wasn't anything really formal, just kind of loosey goosey with them, but still something. And I felt like because I know like you know my high school is really good on health education and sex education. Um, but I know like all the districts around me were horrible. So like, I know it's a total crapshoot what the students were coming to college with or without. So I was like, let me just make sure that they have something. I want them to be prepared and I don't have to deal with little baby Delta Chi's running around, um, while they're still in college. So 
Um, and what was the, so this was just something you took on? I mean, there was no um, central office. Uh, um, no, this was just me as like the local volunteer chapter advisor. Um, and I talked to the, the chapter and was like, hey, like during the new member process, um, you know, how do you all feel about me doing like a little bit of time with the new members about some sexual health stuff? Um, and they all knew I worked at Planned Parenthood. So like, they're like, oh, like Drew actually knows what he's talking about. Um, and they were like, yeah, that's cool. So it had been like a bit of a thing that we did, you know, probably maybe two hours at most, but just try to get them a little bit with each new class that came in each semester. Um, so yeah, it was just kind of a little side project, a way to get for me to get involved. Cause I would also come and introduce myself as their chapter advisor. And I would take some time to talk about uh, fraternity and sorority life at like a, nas- a national perspective, um, trying to help them understand that like, hey, we might be a chapter at Westchester and we have our community here at Westchester where we're also this larger national, international um, community and talking about what that looks like and what like our headquarters structure looks like for them. Um, so they could also have that context. So I would call, come talk to them about Greek life stuff. And also I was like, well, I have you. Let's spend some time to talk about some sex ed stuff. Um, so now I want to rewind for just a second. Um, I want to come back to this, obviously, but yeah, I, what what interested you in the first place in Greek life, like for yourself? Like, what what was the appeal of fraternities for you? Yeah, so um, you know, I didn't join. I tried to join a group in my junior year at Westchester, and I was about a couple weeks in. And the hazing started, and as like a junior, 22 years old, I was just like, I don't have time for this. Um, <laughs> so I just told him flat out, I'm like, I don't have time for this. I don't, I'm not here for that. Um, and so I left their process, and it was just like, yeah, no. And then I pretty much had kind of like resigned it. I was like, all right, well, I guess I'm not going to go Greek because like I didn't really like any of the other organizations that were on campus at that point. But over the summer leading up to my senior year, Um, Delta Chi was expanding back to Westchester. They were going to start a new chapter um, in the fall. So they, I ended up meeting a couple of our expansion consultants over the summer because I was working in the student center and they were coming to talk to people. So I met them a couple of times and then went to one of their info meetings and it was just really cool. um, The opportunity to be in a brand new chapter and kind of like set the tone. Um, And that was just really exciting. So I, I took that and that was a really cool experience to be, um, in that first year with them and like help them set the tone and then come back as the chapter advisor later. Mm-hmm. Um, but part of the reason why I wanted to join, I felt like, cause I was really involved in uh, the LGBTQ student organization on campus while I was at Westchester. And like, that was basically my entire like social network. Um, so like the people I went to class with, we were, you know, as a health and phys ed major, we all were pretty much, we weren't in a, a tight cohort, but we were, um, we, we were all in a lot of classes together and I had done all my gen eds already. So like all my class time was with these people. So I had some social network there and then most of the rest of it was either the people in the LGBT student organization or the people who worked in the student center. Um, that's where I worked as well. Mm-hmm. And I, part of it was like, I wanted to expand the social network, but also the other part of it was just like, I recognized that I just didn't really have a lot of relationships or connections with, straight guys. Um, Mm -hmm. I was just like, I feel like I should not be that person who just lives in his bubble um, and try and expand a little bit. So um, that was one of the draws of joining Greek life was just like, you know, I want to try and develop more relationships with people outside of my like LGBT bubble. Um, Mm -hmm. Doing that with like straight women, you know, easier. Um, (laughs) But with straight guys, it was just like, it just wasn't always there. Um, so I was like, let's push myself a little bit into an environment where I would like have to. So that was definitely part of it. Um, and, and, really, and, and the assumption was that basically almost everybody in the fraternity would, would be likely to be straight. More likely. Uh, yeah. Um, thinking about my founding class, uh, the first 19 guys who joined three there was me who was already out and then I think three others came out later through their experience. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The majority, majority of the group has always been straight or straightish. So oh, okay. um, yeah. And it's just, you know, a group I wasn't really used to uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, on top of like, you know, the idea of like getting to join some leadership stuff and 
I had really gotten into like student affairs. So I was like, let me really see what this returning sorority life aspect is all about. Um, and I just really enjoyed it from that point. Yeah. Yeah. Just, I was, I was curious about that. Cause I know, I, you know, um, there are a lot of stereotypes about fraternities and there's a lot of stereotypes about the kind of people who join fraternities. And, and one of the things I've always found noteworthy and interesting about you is that you just, you don't match that stereotype in any way that I can identify. So, yeah. Yeah. Like when I was, when I was like a, you know, freshman, like I went to community college for a couple of years then transferred to Westchester. And when I was like first coming to Westchester, like I said, no interest in Greek life because all I saw it was the drinking party social time. And I'm like, I don't need that. Like it wasn't, a, it, that part wasn't a draw for me, partly because I was just like, well, if I want to go out and go party, like I don't want to go to some house party. That's probably going to be all straight people. Like that's, that's no fun for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was used to going to like down to the bars in Philly or having, you know, time with like the people from LGBTQ. Uh, that's what we just called the student organization back then. We just called it LGBTQ. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. We were, not creative. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so like the idea of like going to like a house party was never that interesting to me. I went to a couple my first year at Westchester. And I was just like, Ugh, like this is not my scene. Um, I went to one when I was a freshman in college and yeah, yeah. I, it, it was not interesting to me. <laughs> no, like, and then so later I was like, all right, I'm not here for a social aspect, but I'm like, I feel like there's potential for me in other ways, and especially the idea of expanding my social network and kind of taking the time to learn how to build relationships with people that are outside of like my, you know, community, but making that part of my community in a way. So how does that tie into, I mean, this is jumping a little, but we had a conversation before I started recording. Um, Does that tie at all into what you were thinking about, like the sense of belonging that you were sort of thinking about lately? Yes, I mean, a lot of the stuff, a lot of the selling point that people try to use for Greek life is that it is to have family away from home. Um, We do, we talk a lot about this concept of brotherhood, which we always also joke, like, if a fraternity sorority professional could ever define brotherhood and figure out a way to measure it effectively, they would win the game. Like, they would just (laughs) really win the fraternity sorority life game, and they would be... um, you know, the most important person in the world because everyone uses that like metric. All the students are always like, we have the best brotherhood or like our brotherhood's so good, so strong. And I'm just like, you don't really know what you're talking about though. Like there's no definition. There's no way to measure it. There's no concept. It's just this super ambiguous thing, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's an awesome selling point. And like, it is something that it once someone finds it through that experience it's it's you kind of just clicks you're like oh this is what they were talking about but like it's so hard to kind of explain Um, because it is i think a thing that people can't get out of the experience um and there's people that form you know lifelong relationships with guys they were in organization in in a fraternity with Mm -hmm. um and, you know, I look back to some of the members who've gone through my chapter and I'm like, you know, I can look on their Instagram and the people that they're hanging out with going to, you know, on guy vacations with or having in weddings, a good chunk of them are all guys that they were uh, in the fraternity with. Hmm. Uh, not always for everybody. Like, I'm close with some of the guys that I was in, in my chapter with, but like also I'm not like, it isn't the core group of my, of my network. Um, but it, it is definitely something that even if people have it for that four years or however long they're in college for. Um, it gives them that, that sense of, I'm looking forward to going back to, co- to campus because I'll get to see my brothers. Um, or I'm looking forward to going to this Delta Chi event because I get to meet Delta Chi's from other ca- campuses um, mm-hmm. and get to see what that is like and see, you know, who else in the world is the Delta Chi. And it's like, there's that, that, that kind of factor, I think that can really grab people's attention. Um, yeah. And I'm thinking particularly just of, you know, the research on men and intimacy and friendships and it's hard. It's often hard for men to form friendships. And so yeah. it seems like this is kind of a catalyst that for the men who, I guess for the men who, who, who want to seek that out. It's, it's, it's a weird thing because when you, and this is, I, I've had a lot of conversations with, especially a lot of people in the wider program um, as a student, 
talking about because they're all like oh you work for fraternity headquarters office i'm like well yeah it's my second one and they're like are you a member i'm like yeah i'm a member of an organization and they just like you said like you don't really seem like the fraternity type um (laughs) and you know part of that is the stigma if we think of fraternities from penn state or from alabama and like those really big schools that have really large communities and seem like seem really reflective of the kind of fraternities we see like in movies and tv you know the the animal house type Mm -hmm. raucous you know uh, organizations and that is some of them you know that is definitely some of the organizations but there's also some of the organizations you see some chapters and you're like oh you guys are all like super smart and super academically inclined and you actually do all the things that like fraternities talk about doing you know they have high grades they have a diverse pool of membership and they like are engaged in like some kind of philanthropic philanthropic experience which is great you know that's that's all we ask Versus some of the other ones that all they do is party, you know, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot of space between <laughs> all of those groups. Um, but when I talk to, especially when I would talk to people at wider, I'm like, the groups that I see doing it right are the groups that actually really build those really close bonds together. And the men let down their, you know, their little masculinity shields <laughs> when they are, when they're in a group that they feel comfortable with and they don't feel that they have to play the part as much. And sometimes it's only when it's just them. Like if anyone else is, if an outsider is there or if a, you know, if a woman is there completely shields you back up and they start, you know, they put on the act and then they start playing into the douchey frat bro stereotype. Sometimes I've seen it happen, but if you get them alone, you're like, Oh, you guys are actually, feeling, thinking, rational, young adults who can express emotion. Like this is wild. Um, <laughs> so what do you think is going on there? Part of it is, I think part of it is they just don't know what to do with it. Like they know that the stuff that they're doing, the relationships that they're building and the closeness that they're gaining with each other is really important and needed for them. And I don't think some of them realize that it is something they need. So then they're like, oh, wow, like, this is insane. Like, I didn't know I needed this. And this is maybe going counter to some of the things I thought I was going to get out of this experience or should be getting out of this experience or counter to how I thought my relationships with other men should be. You know, like, like we said before, most of the guys in, this, in organizations are straight um, or straight-ish. And the concept of any kind of closeness to another guy seems might come as far into them until they experience it and they're like, Oh, this is actually a really awesome thing, but also kind of scary at the same time. Cause it's not anything I might've had before. Um, when I was chapter advisor for my chapter at Westchester at one point, um, they were, ch- they were really close and the group, everyone just felt really on the same wavelength and felt really connected. And just, there's like a really strong connection between everyone. And we decided that they wanted to do a brotherhood event where they, uh, it was, they, they did a lock-in. So everyone came to the house um, Friday night, whatever, I think Friday night and there was pizza and everything and one overnight. And then we were there like all after, all day, all morning and afternoon. And this was um, only, only members of this particular chapter. Yeah. Of the chapter came over to the house. Um, they invited me to come to um, as their chapter advisor. And I was like, okay, and part of it was just some fun stuff, just some time to spend time together and just spend time together with just themselves. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, mm-hmm. there, was some, there was some light alcohol uh, consumption. Uh, they made an active decision that we don't want people to drink, but we can casually drink beer. Uh, I'm like, okay, that's a very mature decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the, they like very much emphasized our goal is not to get wasted. Our goal is just to have a chill time. I'm like, I appreciate that you thought about that. Uh, <laughs> I do. I do like that beer doesn't count. That's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh, one of the activities that they did, and this was stuff that they all came up with on themselves. This was, they ran past me just to make sure everything seemed safe or good. And I was like, yeah, that sounds good. Uh, one of it was a like brotherhood. They called them watersheds but like brotherhood sharing moment basically. And everyone in the room 
uh, was asked to share something about their experience with the fraternity um, and how they how connected they felt to the brotherhood and how connected they felt to the chapter and all that kind of stuff. And we spent like two hours watching 40 some 18 to 22 year olds plus a couple other guys who were older crying with each other. Hmm. I'm just like, what is going on? Like (laughs) it was wild. It was, you know, guys would share, you know, Hey, I, when I came into this group, I didn't really feel connected, but like over the last year, you guys really made me feel like I have a home on campus. And, you know, some of these students are local. Some of these students are coming from out of state. So like, it's really exciting. We had a brother who revealed that he experienced sexual violence as a high schooler, um, was a you know a survivor of sexual violence, and how that really impacted him as a gay member of the chapter. So he was sexually you know sexually assaulted by a man, and then you know had all that conflicting emotions and thoughts about you know, did he bring it on himself or not, and then how's that express him? How's he express himself sexually and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and how does he as a dude talk about being sexually assaulted by somebody else? So he, you know, he, someone revealed that, you know, a couple guys revealed that they had cons- been considering suicide at some point in their career, but you know, the, their membership had helped them kind of pull them back away from that. And it's just like, I'm sitting here watching and experiencing, you know, this close to group of close to 50 guys crying together in a room. And it was just like, this is wild. Um, and when I, w- I was working at Planned Parenthood, and I told some of the women I worked there with, and they were like, are you kidding? Like, what, what did you do to these men? And I'm like, I didn't do anything. This is all they all chose to do it themselves. Um, mm-hmm. They all chose to participate. Um, and they came up with this idea themselves. And everyone knew the activities they were going to do that night. Like, it was communicated, like, hey, we're going to do this. We're going to do a roast. So come prepared for some jokes on some people. Mm-hmm. We're going to do this watershed moment where we're all going to share something personal. So make sure you have something. So, like, and I know other groups that have done other stuff like that too. When I worked at my headquarters office, I would visit a lot of chapters and talk to them. And the conversation about like, what is your, how does, how does everyone feel in the chapter? Does everyone feel close? Is there clicks? And could we know that like, if there's clicks and divergent relationships and stuff like that, it can, it can tear at the structure of the chapter and make them less effective. So mm-hmm. that was always something on my mind when I was talking to chapters, especially if I felt like they were struggling what are the intergroup relationships look like? Um, but it's wild because, and some of this will change like in two years, you know, depending on the group that they, the couple of men that they recruit each year, um, it can go from like having no relationships whatsoever to having really strong relationships. But then two years again, and depending on who they recruited, all that close, tight knit, open feeling disappearing, uh, which is what happened with my chapter. Hmm. Two years after that, like first, like, lock-in experience where they did all that crying and sharing they you know the the chapter was then at a point where they were super tense and there was definitely like two factions in the chapter and they weren't they weren't connected um and i see this happen to a lot of groups um at one point our chapter started to get like the kind of the idea around campus the that people are like oh like delta chi like oh they're kind of like the gay chapter on campus so of course then we have you know the men thought they had the course correct and started to lose a lot of that connection hmm. and started to act more broy and you know traditionally stereotypically what we think of as fraternity men and really focusing on partying again and through all that losing a lot of the connection and that deep open relationship that so, we so had previously so you think that you think that the reputation that the chapter had gained was not, it wasn't due to the actual fact that there were a lot of queer members. It was due to the fact that the activities seemed gay to the outside world or something like that. So we, we were definitely the chapter at that point that seemed to have the higher population of queer members. I'm saying maybe a handful, but still mm-hmm. like, right. Um, who were out and open and some of them involved with the LGBTQ student organization mm-hmm. uh, while still being actively involved with the chapter. So that was definitely a contributing factor. But then also just like, you know, the other groups see this chapter doing really well. And sometimes they just want to knock them down a peg instead of bettering themselves. Mm, yeah. So they start throwing around the labels of like, oh, Delta Chi, Delta, you know, Delta Bi, like Delta Queer, like, you know, you get some of those things. And this, this is, 
this happens all over the place. I've seen it happen all the time. Chapters start to really succeed. They start to build a really strong inner group connection, um, which then does open up a lot of that looseness for what masculinity can look like in that chapter, which then gets coded as being queer, gay by the yeah. outside groups. Right, and then, right. you know, oh, like, where Delta Chi had a cry in and like, you know, they're really, you know, they all like hang out with each other and they're super cool having like gay dudes living in the house and all that gets just gets coded. And then like it starts to get around the, the campus. And then some of the guys in the chapter who were really great when it comes to having some of those relationships start to get spooked by it. And then very unconsciously uh, those, those masculinity shields go back up and they have to start proving to the outside groups, hey, like, yeah, like, we're still, like, bro, and we still meet this expectation of being a fraternity, and then they start recruiting men for that versus what they were previously recruiting. Oh, so then, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's so interesting. See, yeah. I'm just thinking of the, all the literature on, you know, performance, masculine performance, and the whole idea that it can all come crumbling down at any moment for any reason. and So quickly. And what you're describing is so fascinating because this is, like, I mean, that's in the literature and I always imagine that happening for, within men's minds, but you're, but you're also now talking about like behavioral manifestations of this. Oh yeah. Like, and it's, it's, it's something that like I can look at and look back at. And if I were to go to those men and say, Hey, as a group, you all collectively decided that you were spooked by this concept and you like you as a chapter chose to go in a different direction mm-hmm. completely unconsciously. And they would have, like, I'm sure that they were to sit down and look at it, they would probably, like, you know what, right? You, you know, we did. We just, we didn't think about it, but this is just the way we started to focus on parties more. We started to recruit differently. Our grades started to slip. Like, it's just a whole package deal that happens. And it's so hard to communicate it to them also. It makes total sense in my head. And I can sit there and watch it happen. Because I'm like, oh, here's cue number one, cue number two, number three. Oh, and now they're afraid that they're going to be at the gay chapter. So now, you know, they're going to recruit a bunch of dude bros and mm-hmm. start throwing ragers every weekend. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, oh my God, it's happening again. So, but trying to tell them that they like, it's hard. It's hard for them to see it. Like you can tell them that you can lay it out to them. You can explain it through, you know, observation, like, but until it happens and they process it and they take time away from it and look back at it, it's really hard for them to recognize that that's what they're doing. Um, like I said, it's, it's not an active decision. Like they didn't all get together and say, Hey, we're becoming too gay. We need to recruit mm-hmm. differently. Sometimes maybe, you know, it, that could happen. But as far as I understand with the group I was working with, like it was just very much this change in culture, very passive unconscious change in culture. Yeah. Wild. And, and how do you, I mean, how is this for you re- even just reflecting on it or maybe at the time, how did you feel as a gay man in the midst of this? It got really frustrating. Uh, <laughs> um, it peaked uh, the semester after I left uh, being their chapter advisor and actually had gone to work at headquarters that whole semester before that we were having chapter elections and I could tell like, we were at that point where like there are two factions in the chapter. You have the party chap, you know, the party function faction and you have the other group that's like just trying to do what they want to do. And like, Hey, we recognize we need to keep our grades up and we need, like we can have socials, but we also need to do like our service events and like all that kind of stuff. Like mm-hmm. trying to do everything, not just focus on the socials. And they were, you know, the, the, the other group was, definitely the more progressive, more open, more queer. Whereas the let's party and social all the time was definitely more like the conservative group. Mm -hmm. Um, It's weird how that, that there was like a through line there. Like they were, you know, the one, the, the, the party group weren't thinking very much outside of this is just what we want to do for this, like two years left that we have here as undergrads and, you know, not really looking at the changing campus culture not looking at the changing, you know, fraternity and sorority culture in general, this is 2014. So like we had just had the, uh, uh, the UVA, um, sexual assault that went 
national um, mm-hmm. t- a year before that. So like the community and the, the national community was changing and I was trying to help them understand like, yes, there are new policies because we need to have them. And mm-hmm. one group was like, yeah, we get it. The other group was like, no, we're just here to party. And we got to this very, very stressful point. And as their chapter advisor, I was trying to help push uh, during elections that the other group get more people on the board. So it was like, and I had a student call me out for it. He's like, why are you so involved in elections this year? And I'm like, because I'm really concerned about the safety and the, the lifespan of this chapter right now. I don't think you guys have a long-term plan for the safety of this chapter. And as a chapter advisor, like it's my job to make sure you guys persist. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so the next semester at, they had elections, they went so, so um, in my opinion, and I was working at headquarters and uh, long story short, they hosted a social event that was just their mission of the social event was to get hammered. It was you and a date, bring a fifth of alcohol and drink it that night. Mm. And they had a sexual violence complaint against them. And so like that whole process of being chapter advisor during a time when they were really doing some cool stuff, they really had their act together. They're like, you know, top two chapter. They're like always trading in the other group with like first or second on, the, on campus for a while there. Grades, community service, so-so in recruitment, but like recruiting lots of different people, which was great. Mm. To then kind of backslide into this, we're just here to party community, you know, concept and then have them present a social event where they, you know, create an environment that allowed for a sexual assault to happen. Mm. Um, and it's just like their chapter advisor called me the night before he called headquarters. and was just like, Hey, like this is what's happening. And it was just like a lot. And I'm and like a lot of emotions for me. Cause like I said, I had spent a, you know, each semester with each new class talking to them about sexual health and sexual, you know, con- consent and, so, you know, healthy relationships and all this kind of stuff and trying to help them understand that like, our parties need to be safe or safe-ish as best as they can. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, the group before them would get it and they'd be like, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, this is, we get that. Um, we can have a social event and we can get drunk, but we also need to like keep an eye on people and make sure everyone's doing okay. And then this last group, like they just didn't really get it. And it all came together and bite them in the ass um, to the point where they were suspended for a year and a half and mm-hmm. I'm sitting at headquarters just like stewing cause I couldn't do anything, you know, I'm too close to the chapter. Like I can't be involved in the investigation and stuff. And it's just, mm-hmm. it's really frustrating cause you're just sitting there like, damn guys, like we were doing really good at doing this fraternity thing. Right. And like not being a hundred percent the stereotypical dude bros that we think of. And then just in a couple of semesters, the group completely just turns around and becomes those dude bros. Yeah. It's just, it's just like, uh, largely due to homophobia. It sounds like it, it's, it's that masculinity stuff that yeah. like, if it's not seen as, if it's seen as any drop of, you know, too queer, like then they start to throw out the shields again. And it's just like, what are you doing? Um, so it was frustrating as the word. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that I think of when I think of that spot it's when I think of that, that whole experience and trying to explain to the men, cause I met with them when they, the year and a half passed, they came back, they came back with seven guys who were persisted and said, we really want to do this right. We want to start restart and get our act together. And then like a year later, I met one of the members who was at a, uh, a national event and he was acting like dude bro and i'm like are you kidding mm-hmm. like i had a conversation with him and the i think it was i think he was the interim executive director of the fraternity had a conversation with him and it's just like hey man like your chapter just came back because of a break um a suspension from a party and you're going to be sitting here boasting about a party and he mm-hmm. it turned out that he was actually fluffing it he was talking about this ra- huge rager that they actually didn't have and he's trying to like be the big man in front of the other chapters that were there mm. because Westchester's kind of a smaller school compared to these other schools that he was sitting with. So he was trying to make like, he's, you know, the big, you know, he can also play with the big chapters. And I'm like, dude, what are you doing? You don't need to like, you don't need to do that. You don't need to prove anything. Like 
Well, yeah, but he did. <laughs> I know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But it was just, and so that was frustrating too, then to see that this new group, I don't know if they've learned many lessons from past experiences. So, yeah, I think that's, that's the thing we, we wrestle with in this whole field. You know, masculinity is just hanging on tight. It, it's, we're trying to break it down and it's just hanging on. Mm-hmm. Especially when you work in a college thing, you, get, you at best have them for four years and you have their attention for four years. Most likely you have their attention for about 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. So or, just, or at best a couple hours when you have your, like you said, some of your workshops and things. Right. And you can only do so much in those couple of hours. Part of it is, is that lived experience and hopefully that they're in the fraternity at the time where they are on the kind of the, the approach to more open masculinity versus the, the retreat from that. Because I think it is very cyclical. I'm sure if we were to take, if some PhD student at some point wants to do a cyclical timeline of chapters and watch, you know, whether they were more open or more closed masculinity wise, like you probably could see a trend that way. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think we're all hoping that there's maybe a, an, a, an overall trend toward more openness, but that, you know, what you're telling me so far, this has been a, a bit uh, uh, harrowing uh, to so hear that, that maybe, I say maybe in, <laughs> yeah, oh, I will say in general, sorry. Um, there is progression. Hmm. Um, and in different parts of the country, there's more progression than other parts. Okay. Um, and with different, some organizations are taking it a bit further and are moving more quickly um, because they're getting the push from, you know, their national headquarters and their alumni base. We're sometimes from, directly from the students and saying, hey, we want to be a more progressive group. Hmm. Um, but then you also see those progressive groups still doing the same things that other groups do. And Sometimes really wild, you see, you see um, there's uh, Delta Lambda Phi, which is an organization founded in the 80s to be a fraternity for gay and bisexual men. Mm-hmm. Um, so the majority of their membership is gay or bisexual or queer. And that's really cool. And you're like, oh, that's awesome. And you, they exist on some pretty big campuses. Um, but it's also interesting to see which ones of those continue to live like that kind of progressive ideal and which ones fall into the mindset of we are fraternity. This is what fraternity does. We throw parties and like, and you can go to different DLP groups and be like, all right, you're like the super progressive group that like, yeah, you you host social events, but you also do all this other stuff or you're this DLP group over here. But honestly, I wouldn't be able to tell you from another dude bro chapter, (laughs) except for the fact that I got some queer coding and I'm assuming that you're all a bunch of gays. Um, yeah. And so you know, uh, 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 and it's more, more men are welcome at your parties or something like that, you know? Yeah. So it's this, it's this weird dynamic. There's like lots of baby steps and progression here and there. And there, and there's been a, some minor community wide progression. Like most groups are more welcoming to LGBT members than even when I was in 10 years ago. Hmm. So like, that's awesome. Most groups are more open to people of color. Still working on that in some places. Um, mm-hmm. And it's for some organizations. Religion doesn't really seem to tend to be a thing that they think about much anymore, um, which is great. But there's still like some of those holdouts and some of the alumni that need training. Like, hey, like, it's not 1975 anymore when you remember. I need mm-hmm. you to like... <laughs> <laughs> you need to update your perspectives here on what that fraternity experience should be looking like for 2019. Cause now we're dealing with a completely different generation. We're getting into the Gen Z experience and, you know, a lot of research on them suggests that like for millennials, a lot of it was mission focused and values based. And that was, you know, if you talk to fraternity sorority professionals about values based recruitment, it was a whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the research on Gen Z is that they don't really care they are looking at this as a transactional model and are saying, if I join a fraternity, what am I getting out of it? Mm -hmm. And that I think can really potentially change the calculus that a lot of our chapters are going to have to use to recruit Um, and might change it in the benefit of 
more open and loose masculinity versus more closed or may not. You know, if Gen Z students are coming to fraternities with the idea of what I want out of this experience is a social life, you know, it could go either way. If it's what I want out of this is leadership development and to better know myself and to gain some brotherhood and gain new friends and become a more well-rounded adult by the time I leave college, maybe, you know, maybe we have more opening to them to talk about different things that are sometimes seen as counter to traditional masculinity. Um, Yeah. And I'm thinking about, I mean, I guess people often accuse me, I think of being a little Pollyanna-ish sometimes, but I'm thinking about if, if, someone is a more transactional minded person. I mean, maybe the opportunity is um, how will this benefit you to be Mm -hmm. more open and to be more inclusive and all of that, because there's, there there is a conversation I've heard and I don't, I try not to go too much into this, but obviously I've, I've read a little bit of what like the incels are saying and those kind of communities are saying. And a lot of them are framing things as like, we're losing all this stuff. What happened Mm -hmm. to old masculinity? And it's like, well, how about we frame this not as losing, but as, you know, and not as winning, but just, let's just frame this as like the, here's some other stuff that might have value to you. Yeah. Like it's a, a, I like to think of it more of as like an expansion. Mm -hmm. We were, we were this little block and now we can be this much bigger block of things um, that you can have more room to play in. You know, we talk about like, if you do like an activity like the man box, like you are confined to this very small thing mm. or you can care less about it and have all this room to play in and like kind of be more open to be able to pick what you want to do versus what the box tells you to do. Yeah. And I think that is a, that's kind of a conversation I think some groups are starting to have. In my, in my previous role with, uh, with Phi Kappa Psi, I was their health and wellness consultant and a lot of our programming was focused, the majority of it was focused on prevention around sexual assault, alcohol consumption. Mm-hmm. And this past year we were started, we started stuff with mental health, partly because a lot of the men in polling, we're asking us, we need resources on mental health. We don't know how to talk about it. We don't know how to help each other. Um, we don't yeah, know. And what that, to and that do. story you told earlier, I mean, it sounds like there were some very, there were some men who really were distressed a lot and suicidal yeah. at times even. Yeah. So I think from that point in 2013, 14 to now we're at this point where the men are asking us for these resources is yeah. really cool. Yeah, that's um, great. I think this Gen Z is more, they're more aware of some of this stuff that, you know, this box exists and they're allowed to push out of it a little bit. And they're also allowed to ask for things um, that other groups may not have asked previously, uh, which is great. Helps us understand what they want more mm-hmm. <laughs> instead of trying to figure out, Hey, like we're going to throw all these different things at you. And they're like, we don't want any of those. Um, <laughs> but um, I had a point someplace in there and I think I lost it, but oh, let me, let me see if I can remember. Well, yeah, I mean, I, well, I think we were trying to get to uh, whether there's an overall progress and, and maybe um, what, what younger, younger men seem to want. seems like there was, you were moving in a positive direction there. Yeah. Yeah. I think overall, especially as the groups are the headquarters people, the campus people, the alumni people, and the students, they're all starting to get this idea that like, hey, like, partly it's the pressure from outside. If we don't get our, sh- you know, our ship straight, we might not exist in five years. Mm-hmm. You know, part of it is a survivability thing. Um, and we're finally like sitting down with a lot of stuff to say, hey, we actually really need to address this. We've been talking about addressing it, but we're, we just never did. Um, this past year, the main insurance provider for most of the fraternity headquarters offices upped their prices to the point where they're like, we're upping your prices and we're cutting your coverage. So like a lot of our liability insurance is way more expensive now, hmm. which is hurting the, the fraternities. Um, and membership is down also. So it's this very much this thing of like, all right, we're dealing with smaller numbers and we're dealing with less money. We need to figure out how we're going to get this together. And a lot of people are starting to focus on 
prevention programming and just holistic member development. Um, this idea that like part of it is this idea of moving away from the traditional pledge process where like, oh, you're a pledge for eight weeks and you're getting all this education about the fraternity and all this stuff. And then after that, we don't really do any kind of membership development. Moving away from that to saying, hey, you're going to get some stuff while you're a new member and before you get initiated, but then we're also going to continue this ongoing educational process as a member to make sure that, and it's going to be adjusted as you're, you know, as you're a first freshman and sophomore, you're going to get some specific stuff to help make sure that like, you know how to be a student and it can stay successful. But as you progress to be a junior and senior, like a lot of it's going to focus on leadership and professional development. Make sure you're prepared to leave college and have a job um, <laughs> or figure out what you're going to do, you know, but also just looking at like in my role, like um, my supervisor and I, we were also focusing on general health and wellness. We were developing programming around, you know, how to develop a fitness plan, how to talk to somebody about, you know, a diet plan. If you need to address your, the way you eat, um, you have a nutritional requirement that says you need to change your diet. Like how do you talk to somebody about that? Yeah. How do you manage being a student with a chronic health condition? Um, how do you talk to somebody about mental health? How do you go about, talking to a professional about mental health. If maybe your counseling center on campus is too full uh, that semester, where else can you go? Um, yeah. And, and how do you do these things when these are not masculine things to do? And mm-hmm. so, you know, it's going to yeah. be, code, it's going to be coded a certain way to use the language you used earlier. Um, mm-hmm. How do you overcome that sort of social stigma in addition to the difficulty you might be having with, you know, just help seeking and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely the other flip side of that conversation is like, we want you to be healthy members. And we will, in order to do that, like you need to be more ready to ask for help and go take care of yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I do some volunteer stuff with some of the sorority headquarters doing some of this prevention programming as well. And it's so much easier to talk to them about like self-care, like in the mental health conversation I have with them we focus a bit on self-care and coping mechanisms. Mm-hmm. It's just so much easier to talk to the women about it. <laughs> uh, so they're just like, yeah, this is what we do this is what we do. And then we, we have the conversation like, is that effective? Is that ineffective? When does one become ineffective? All that kind of stuff. And they're just, they love that conversation. Sometimes with the men, it's been a mixed bag, but sometimes with the men, it is pulling teeth. Yeah. They're like, all right, how do you cope with your emotions and just having to, having to have like an emotional intelligence conversation during the mental health conversation mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. with like recognizing the emotions that they're sitting in is like a whole other part that sometimes I don't have to do with the women because they're already, they're already there. They get it. So. Yeah. I'm also thinking, um, I'm thinking that even just some of the things you described about the factions that were um, getting into trouble. And I mean, they were just blatantly engaging in harmful behavior. I mean, it was self-harming behavior. It, it also mm-hmm. harmed other people, which of course is, 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 is equally yep. more horrible, but, but it yeah. was harming themselves too. And it's like, okay, now you're engaging in intentional self-harm. We really would rather that you self-help and that might also help you help other people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, that, and part of that, like the idea of like, we need to throw a rager every night of the weekend, like before it was like every weekend, then it got to like, we need to make sure we're having a party every Friday and Saturday night mm-hmm. and maybe sometimes on a Thursday night. And I'm like, when the hell are you guys sleeping slash studying slash doing anything else? Right. And like all that, all that time that you guys could be doing other things. Yes. I want you to have a social life. And a part of college social life does include like partying and having social events. But I also need to make sure that they're safe for you and the people you invite over, like mm-hmm. inviting people over with everyone to bring their own fifth of alcohol and sit there and drink that between two people. I've done that. It's horrible. Like, yeah, you know, I've made safe. some alcohol co- you know, decisions and a friend of mine have split a bottle of tequila in a night and it's just, it's not great. Like it's horrible feeling. Oh yeah. I think I once, <laughs> I think when I was 18 or 19, I did that with three of us and I don't even think we got through the bottle, you know, and that yeah. was, probably as drunk as I've ever been. And it was not pleasant. <laughs> no. And like, and all thankfully no like, one was hurt, but it was definitely yes. just, you know, yes. not the best thing I could have done for myself or even the others around me. 
yeah i can just imagine everyone's liver just yelling at them like please stop like <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> and, well, and, all this- and then how do you and then how do you like how do you even apart from that like okay and then you get up the next morning and we want you to maybe have a morning workout but <laughs> that's not going to happen you know and right. or we had this block cleanup we're supposed to, to go do at 10 o'clock yeah. and yeah nobody made that <laughs> yeah 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 wow but yeah. So, so I wanted to come back to one thing because there was one thing interesting that I think I heard and you can sort of confirm or, or, or comment, but I heard that you, from what you said earlier, I heard that there seems to be at least some movement in a lot of fraternities in the direction of more inclusivity of just different types of people, you know, that kind of thing. And that's good. And that's positive, but it seems like, it's not so much, oh, we're going to accept a few more queer members or we're going to accept, you know, yes, that's sort of happening, but it doesn't sound like there's acceptance of what it probably means to have a diverse group of people, like how a culture has to change in order to embrace a a diverse group of people. It sounds like that's what's not happening. It, so the the, the tricky part is, is that it'll vary from every chapter of a specific organization Mm -hmm. and within a campus community it'll vary with every chapter that's there so like you might have the chapters that are like yeah we're still racist and pretty pretty under the radar open about it and like just accept straight white men um just you know they're actively recruiting those but like by actively recruiting they're actively not recruiting others and then you have the other groups that are like no like we are just naturally very progressive you know in the way that we recruit, we look at the people that we know would be a great fit for our chapter, that would be a good benefit to our chapter, but we also can offer to them as well. And it's really cool to see that. And you go to chapter, you know, you go to a campus and you look at your chapter there and you're like, oh, you mirror what your overall campus community looks like. Mm. That's great. You know, it's really awkward when <laughs> you go to like a school in South Texas and the fraternity chapter there is all white. Yeah where like the majority of the student population is probably Latino and you're just like, Hmm, that's awkward. That's weird. That's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. You don't under, you're not getting this at all. But what I'm reading is you have other groups that definitely mirror their campus population. You're like, Oh, like this is cool. You know, this is, this is showing that you guys just, you're taking people that you know will fit with the group and aren't looking at other things like that. Um, but it sounds like the norms within the group though, that you're describing, not always, but in in some of the cases that are more difficult, it sounds like though, they're not really embracing the real diversity of their members. It's not an active, it's not, I would say generally it's not an active thought. mm -hmm. Um, it's just kind of part of it is they, they, a lot of it is just working off the relationships they already have, um, and using that as a part of, as an avenue for recruitment. Um, so like if it's a group that's primarily white, like most of their relationships are probably going to be other people who are primarily white. Um, whereas if it's a group that started off pretty diverse or picked up a lot of diversity in its lifetime, now it's working with a, you know, a network of people that are a bit more diverse and have relationships that are wider than just our straight white men. So I think part of it, it, you know, we at, I know in, the, the professional level, there's this very interesting concept or this phenomenon going on within fraternity and sorority life. The fraternity professionals in general tend to be much more progressive, whereas the student population is actually leaning more conservative and has been leaning more conservative over the last couple of years. Hmm. So there's this weird <laughs> disconnect sometimes in how we communicate the things that the professionals see are like, hey, like we really should focus on this issue. And diversity has been one of those issues that like, we're like, hey, like, we should be actively working towards a more diverse organization. Um, and I think for some of the chapters, they're here for that conversation. I mean, like, how, how do we do that mm-hmm. without it seeming like we're pandering? And, and part of it is just working in relationships and looking outside of your little neighborhood bubble. Um, but for some of it, it's just, it is very much a conversation that we actively have to have with some of the groups and be like, hey, like, it is a problem when you are a Southern California chapter that is all white people. <laughs> yeah. When 
your school population has probably either majority, uh, you know, Latino or has a huge Asian student population. And all I'm seeing is a bunch of white dudes here. Like mm-hmm. that's an awkward conversation. We probably should be having it. Um, and there's some groups that are working on having a, an organizational conversation around diversity. Um, some groups just aren't like, they're not sure how to have it. So it's one of those things that like, we know it's a problem. We don't know how to have it in a way that our students and alumni will hear it in a way that doesn't just sound like we're trying to pander. And I think there's some crossover in the reason why we want to have a more diverse population that does crossover with some of that, like what might feel like pandering. And that's fine. I think just owning that, like, Hey, like this is part of the reason why we want to do it because it's important that we have, you know, more than just straight white men in our organizations. Um, not that they're bad, horrible people, but like diversity of thought, diversity of, mm-hmm. you know, of our, our student population can help bring new ideas and help the organizations persist into the future and trying to communicate that, I think no one's quite figured out how to communicate that yet in a way that the students and the alumni will hear it. Um, yeah. And then I, get it I, right away. And then some groups that just continue to struggle with it. So I, I, I don't know. I, I don't want to go too much further down this road, but like, I'm also just thinking about even just beyond recruitment and representation. I mean, what, what does it look like? What does it look, what does it look like to hold a party when you, where you recognize the diversity, like the sexual orientation and identity diversity of your membership. What does it look like to hold a party when it's not bring a girl and a fifth, it's bring a person, whoever that person is. And oh, by the way, we need to kind of have conversations about pronouns and we need to have conversations around, you know, all these other kinds of things. Like, Mm -hmm. it sounds like that, that's, that's maybe five years from now, you'll be having those conversations more, but maybe, maybe it's not there yet. That's, and that's another one that some chapters just, they nail it. They mm. get it. They know it's a thing and they've changed their lingo and how they host a social event. Mm. Um, and part of that also goes just in line with how we host so, uh, like safer social events and can get looped into some of the conversations we'd have around how we have a safe so, and inviting social event and talking about violence prevention. Some of those conversations get looped into that and some groups nail it. They get it. And then just like with all the other issues, some groups just, it's not even a thought in their head. And they're just like, why wouldn't we say bring a girl? Yeah. Like, oh, right. Because we potentially have a gay member or like a closeted gay member in our chapter or like, you know, like whatever. So yes, definitely another conversation that needs to be happening. Um, some mm-hmm. groups have it, get it, understand it. Some groups aren't there yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh. Well, we're going on an hour, so I think we should probably wind down. Um, this certainly might be, we, 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 we might just need to have you on again for another conversation. Yeah. Um, was there anything else that, so, so the question I always ask is, was there a question I didn't ask you that you wanted me to ask you? There's something in the back of my head that I feel like I wanted to mention, and I can't remember what it is right now. I think in general, like you were talking about before, like, you know, the stuff that we read about, in articles and research, um, it's there. Like if you if you if you've read Guyland, um, mm-hmm. which you know, we read Guyland in in the Minimasculinities class at Widener, and I was reading through it, and I'm like, yep, like yep, 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 yep. There it is. Yep. Uh huh. There it is. Yep. Check uh, off all the boxes. Yeah. It was it was kind of wild, and some of the groups, um, so like Beta Theta Pi, which is a group I'm doing some curriculum with, that mm-hmm. Brotherhood and Belonging track. Um, they actually use Guyland as a part of their curriculum for a lot of their new member education, which is really cool. And talk about, you might find yourself in this kind of like experience right now. And what's that, what does that look like? And Mm. I know a lot of curriculum people who are familiar with Guyland and some of the research around masculinity and like, we're trying to, masculinity has been a conversation in the fraternity headquarters and campus world for the last couple of years. And for me, I've been trying to push it even a little bit further mm-hmm. to the idea of like, we need to have conversations around sexuality in general, like sexual health, you know, se- you know, our human sexuality in general, um, and how that all plays into 
2015 or 2050, 85, 120 men all living together. Mm. Like, and like the more we can have that conversation, hopefully the more open we can be about it. Yeah, cool. Pete over there is dating a girl, but then, you know, last year he was dating this dude. Like, cool, no problem. Like, you know, we're cool with that. Um, it's not a crazy thing. Oh my God, Pete's bisexual. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and I think like fraternity and sororities have this very direct pipeline to have conversations with their members and about sexuality topics beyond like the risk prevention aspect, but just giving them the chance to have conversations about sex and sexuality to help them be better people in the future. And I think that's like the next, if I could have my way, that would be like the next frontier of like, how do we as fraternity and sorority organizations help our members become better, more like fully realized people through conversations around their sexuality. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm always thinking about the uh, behavioral health models and you know, that's exactly it. Right. It's if, if we frame things always as punitive and negative and, and don'ts, it's very hard to get behavior to change. Mm-hmm. But if, we, if we can frame things around self-efficacy, you know, it really can help. And by the way, oh, by the way, we're also giving people self-efficacy, which is a really good thing. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> just, just incidentally, you know, we're yeah. doing that. <laughs> um, before I left FISI, my project for the summer was actually to take our sexual violence prevention presentation and like do a 180 on it and work it into like a sexual health, healthy relationships conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, because I know that they get a lot of consent by standard intervention, sexual assault prevention stuff from their campuses. And I wanted to give them a chance to say, Hey, you have a sex educator in front of you for an hour, hour and a half. Mm-hmm. What do you want to talk about? And I got, I piloted one of those tracks in April with a group. Um, this is also a group that coincidentally is at an all men's college. So they're fraternity men in an all men's college, which mm-hmm. lots of masculinity. Um, and they loved it. They like came up to me later and were like, we thought this was gonna be really boring because we have all heard of the sexual violence prevention stuff before. And I was like, yeah, I know. That's why I wanted to do this differently. And mm-hmm. they're like, we just really appreciate that someone would talk openly to us about sex and sexuality and give us the opportunity to ask our questions, no matter how like, silly or goofy it might have seemed and i'm like nope that's what we're here for like i want you to be able to do that and i think there's this i I had a conversation with at the sex ed conference with people and i have this concern that there's not enough information on either side of the of the conversation to make effective programming for fraternities the fraternity majority headquarters people don't really have enough sexuality education Mm -hmm. background and the sex educators don't know enough about fraternity sorority life. Yeah. And trying to bridge that gap is like going to be the big important thing, I think. Unless we have fraternity sorority professionals who want to go become sex educators also, which would be great. Not too many of them. I mean, you're, you've got a really great niche. So yeah, I will start that training and I'll take it across the country. Oh, there you go. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I love but, it. Yeah. That's, in the perfect world, I would be somehow teaming up for training sorority life professionals with sex educators and saying, hey, make curriculum. Educate each other and let's learn to make some really effective curriculum for the fraternity sorority community. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, if, uh, if people want to reach you uh, to further this conversation, uh, where should they go? Um, they can go to, they can reach me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Um, my Twitter, I just redid it. So it's kind of, kind of blank looking right now, but Instagram is just drew 616. And my Twitter is, um, just drew Kerwood, uh, on Twitter. So I can put links to this on the, on the blog. So, yeah. So I am always well open and wanting to chat with people. So if anyone has any more questions, they are welcome to come chit chat with me on any of those platforms. And yeah, it's good. Good talking with you. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was really enlightening for me and, and uh, I appreciate your time and Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully we can have another 
chat at some point about, especially because you're working on these new things. I want to hear more about that in like six months or a year. Yeah, definitely. We can definitely talk about how that all pans out um, once I do it in August. So cool. All right. Thanks, Drew. Thank you. Well, there you have it. I really enjoyed that conversation with Drew. Uh, He had such interesting insights and and wonderful personal anecdotes of his experience in fraternity life. And, you know, I, I hope you come away with this thinking a little bit differently, maybe about fraternities. But also, I think we all will come away with this understanding that there's like with so many aspects of our culture and organizations within our culture, there's a lot of work left to be done. And uh, I'm just really happy that people like Drew are doing that work. He's so enthusiastic about it and really knows his stuff backward and forward. So I really hope you enjoyed that interview. Uh, I enjoyed it a lot. And I just wanted to quickly say, if, you, if you'd like to support this podcast, uh, there's a Patreon page and certainly uh, any support that you can give is, is very, very welcome. And particularly if you support at the producer level, you get this wonderful benefit, which I'm about to do, which is I get to mention your name on the podcast. So thank you to Gadi Ben Yehuda, uh, the producer of the podcast. His support is so helpful, and I appreciate it so much. And of course, all the support is very, very much appreciated. Thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you next time. Talk Like a Man is affiliated with the Men's Center for Growth and Change, a Philadelphia-based nonprofit organization whose mission is to help men and boys realize their full potential to love and positively connect with others. For more information, please visit menscenterphilly.org. To find out more about the Talk Like a Man project, visit talklikeaman.net.